If you open your Bibles uh, once again to the to Paul's letter to the Philippians and again to the second chapter. <clears throat> As you can see from the bulletin, our verses for today are uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. But I'm going to go uh, just read two verses before that, the two verses that we studied last week, because they really are... Uh, they're of, of one, uh, one part with this, and it helps us to understand the verses for today. So I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 18. And let's listen now to the inspired word of God. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And here ends our reading from God's perfect uh, word. I read the uh, former verses to put us in mind again of of, uh, uh, Paul's initial comment in this uh, section or this uh, paragraph here, Paul uh, talking to the Philippians uh, and to us, uh, about our uh, our duty before God to obey God by obeying the uh, word of the apostle, the things that the apostle writes. And uh, so having been reminded of uh, that, and we pick up with verse 14 right away, do all things, he says, without complaining and disputing. And so you ask yourself, well, uh, what all all things? Well, uh, probably you could understand it, uh, certainly by implication, uh, as meaning all things uh, generally, all things uh, whatsoever we do. No matter what uh, you do, in other words, uh, do it without complaining and, uh, uh, and disputing, whether it's in our work or in our play, whether it's in our fellowship or our relationships with family or church members or uh, folks outside the faith, do all things. Uh, uh, do do them all without complaining and without disputing. Now, having said that, that's reading the verse out of context, but keeping this context, this chain of verses that I'm always trying to point out to you, he probably specifically uh, means the things which the apostle is calling them to obey, the things that he's telling them to do. These things, the things, in other words, Paul would be saying, the things that I've been talking about to you, 
and the things that I'm going to be talking about more in just the uh, next couple of verses, okay, uh, these things specifically uh, do them, but don't, uh, don't just uh, do them, okay? Uh, do them in a certain way. Do them without complaining and do them without, uh, without dis, uh, uh, disputing, uh, our translation says, uh, well, what exactly then? Well, Paul, as you, as you notice from the 15th verse particularly, that well, what he has in mind is he's, he recognizes that uh, Christians live in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation, a dark and dying and sinful and rebellious world. And in the midst of that darkness, we're called to be something completely different from that. Okay, now this is an idea very common in Paul. You remember uh, perhaps in Romans chapter 12 where Paul says, you know, uh, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, don't be conformed to the world. Don't let your way of living, your way of talking, your way of working, and your values and your uh, recreation and your fun. Don't, no, no, we're supposed to be different than the world uh, around us. Our lives, the apostle is saying, are supposed to be lived in, in a stark contrast, as a matter of fact, um, to the unbelieving world. Okay? We're supposed to be, Paul says in a very beautiful picture here, we're like stars shining in a black sky. We should be so different from the world around us. And uh, in those words, Paul probably had in mind that uh, teaching of Jesus, you are the light of the world, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. So the very beautiful words. What we want to, um, what and what we really need to do when we read it is not just appreciate the beautiful words, but we have to ask uh, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, and uh, uh, we have to ask God Himself, God the Holy Spirit. How exactly then? How, how is it that I can live in a way um, that I really do shine like a light in this very dark world? How can I be a child of God, the apostle says, living uh, in a crooked and a perverse, okay? A crooked and a twisted world, a world with twisted values, okay? Uh, a, a world that really truly is perverted more and more um, each day. How can we live in the midst of all of that and yet live as the children of God shining like lives? Well, here's how then the apostle says. He gives us uh, in these four verses uh, four things, doing all things, he says, in a certain way. And the first thing then we want to notice is that we should do all things without grumbling and arguing. Verse uh, 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Uh, it's disappointing to me, you know, the New King James uh, decades ago started out 
as uh, they build themselves, they named themselves as being a translation that would be faithful to the very powerful language of the old King James. And yet they seem to stumble right and left more and more every time they, have a, they make uh, new revisions to step away uh, from the far more incisive and exact language of the King James and, and, uh, uh, and just choose language which really is so much weaker without complaining or disputing uh, the translation. Then there's some footnotes. Uh, of course, it may help just a little bit. The word that's translated here in the, in the New King James rather uh, starkly, the 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 meaning is correct, but it doesn't reflect the uh, the original word. The original word uh, means something more like grumbling. The Greek word that Paul used is the same Greek word that was used uh, in uh, uh, the uh, old. Uh, what we call the Septuagint, the the old Greek translation of the Old Testament with which Paul uh, was very familiar. And the word he uses is the word that was used throughout the five books of Moses as, uh, as we find described there, the exodus of the Israelites from slavery uh, in Egypt on their way to the promised land. The uh, original word uh, in, the, in the King James itself, which I wish they uh, kept here, uh, was the word murmuring. The word grumbling is a pretty good uh, word, but complaining, though, like I said, it's sort of technically accurate, but it doesn't give you the feeling of the word. This word here uh, is uh, what we call onomatopoeia in, uh, in literary terms. Onomatopoeia means a word that that sounds like what it means. Uh, sneeze. Sneeze. It's a word that sounds like what it means. Knock. See, knock sounds like what it means. You get the idea? Uh, so an onomatopoetic word is a word that sounds like what it means. And in the original, this is an, an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like what it means. As a matter of fact, we get from the Greek word, we get the word gong, as a matter of fact. The gong show, gong, gong, you know. Um, but the idea of murmuring or grumbling, those are onomatopoetic words too. See, murmur, murmur, moan, groan. Those are all onomatopoetic words. They're all words that sound like what they mean. You see, the word complain, yeah, it gets the dictionary right, but it doesn't get the feeling of the word uh, right at all. The people in the wilderness going from Egypt to uh, the promised land were a moaning, groaning, murmuring, grumbling people. God gives them manna, food from heaven. And they finally, I think it's in the 21st chapter maybe of the book of Numbers, they finally say, you know, and all we have to eat is this lousy manna. God gives them food, miraculous food from heaven. You know, complain to, to Moses. You know, you brought us out of Egypt. 
Well, that was a terrible thing to do. Brought us out of Egypt. And when we were there, we had fish and garlic and onions and all kinds of goodies. Now all we got is this manna out here in the wilderness, you see. And they complained. And they complained against Moses' leadership. Even Aaron and Miriam complained against Moses' leadership. They mumbled, they moaned, they groaned. And consequences of mumbling and moaning and groaning were severe. You know what? It doesn't take 40 years. Not even when you're walking to go from Egypt to the promised land. It doesn't take 40 years. But God said in his wrath, those people would fall. Because when Christian people moan and groan, they're moaning and groaning, not just at the, at the manna and not just at Moses, but they're moaning and groaning at God. And God was angry at their moaning and groaning. And they fell. Their bodies were buried in the wilderness. Okay? There were very, very few that actually entered the promised, the promised land itself because of God's uh, anger uh, with, uh, with them. It's so easy for the people of God always uh, to be like that. It kind of reminded uh, me of, uh, I don't know, I'm too old for any, well, because you guys don't watch TV anyway, so contemporary TV wouldn't do you any better, and I don't watch contemporary TV. But I remember an old uh, silly program on TV, a musical kind of a thing. It was called Hee Haw. Okay. And uh, one of the rather famous little pieces uh, they did uh, on there once, a funny song, in other words, was called Gloom Despair. And the lyrics went like, you can, you can uh, look it up on YouTube, and you'll, it's only a couple of minutes long, and you'll, you can hear them sing this silly song. The lyrics are, Gloom, despair, and agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of like the news today. If there weren't bad news, there we wouldn't have CNN. We wouldn't have FNC. We wouldn't have any of it because all we do is bad news, and we can live our lives just like the world. We hear about, we read about, we think about, we talk about the coronavirus. A rigged election. Accusations thrown back and forth between the warring uh, people of this land, not only in Congress, but on the streets. You see? How do you react? You know, in 1992... Queen Elizabeth uh, gave a rather famous speech. Uh, I won't go into the details of what, uh, uh, what brought that about, but uh, she called uh, 1992 her Annus Horribilis, Latin for her horrible year. Tells you something in itself, I think. Her horrible year was because of her family's misbe- gross misbehaviors. Okay, which, of course, have only uh, gotten worse uh, since then. But 
you know, but so many people today, even, even the weather, <laughs> listen to the weather, 2020, boy, we're going to be really glad when 2020 is over. This has been one stinking year. Yeah. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, exceeding misery. Okay. Mumbling, grumbling, and the apostle says, don't be like that. You know, the 11th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, is, for many, many years, you know, you only gradually, doesn't matter whether you're a minister or, or whether you're sitting in the pews, it takes a long time to really think about and digest and, 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 you know, and grow in the knowledge and understanding of how the Bible really works. And the 11th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew is amazing. It starts out with John the Baptist has been thrown into Herod's prison on the Dead Sea. And you know where that's going to go with John the Baptist, right? You remember that. And Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about John the Baptist. And he, he, he starts to talk about this generation they're living in. He said, you know what? They're, they're like bickering kids in the marketplace. You know, one group says uh, to the other, you know, we played the flute and you didn't dance. And we, we sang a dirge and you didn't, you didn't moan and mourn. What's, what's wrong with you people? There's always, you know, you guys, you, you never play nice with us. All they do is moan and groan and complain. And then Jesus says, you know, there has never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And he lived an austere life full of fasting and living in the wilderness. And, and, uh, he's, and, the, and the people said about him, he's possessed. Something wrong with a person that acts that way and dresses that way and talks that way. And then Jesus said, and then the Son of Man comes. And he, he's eating and drinking. Yeah. And what do they say? Oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and he hangs around with sinners. This, this perverse generation. All they do... They don't like John because he's too severe. They don't like Jesus because he's too gentle. You know, they just don't like it. Not only that, Jesus' life, you know that I've often said that too, was a blaze of miracles. And Jesus goes on then in the 11th chapter of Matthew. And he says, woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, those cities would have remained until this day. Because remember, those cities all rejected Christ. All the cities of up uh, there in Nazareth and uh, the northern part of Israel that Jesus came. And he says, woe unto you, Capernaum. If the people of Sodom saw the things that I have done in your city, 
they would still be here today. They will rise up to condemn you. That's how, that's how bad, that's how bad everything, how dark it was. And then you, you think, well, what do you do about that? Well, what's, what's Jesus do about that? He's talking about the miserable state of the church of his day. And the, the thing that has always amazed me about that chapter, Mark, or Matthew rather, uh, continues, and he, uh, he says, at that time, Jesus responded to all the things he just talk, I just mentioned that he was talking about. At that time, Jesus responded, and he said, what? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and you have revealed them to babes. He's talking about his little, little gang of disciples gathered around him. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the powerful and the prudent. I thank you. Why? For so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus looks at the world as dark and crooked and perverse a world. He looks at it and he thanks God that God has sovereignly, sovereignly decreed every single thing, for so it seemed good to God. You see, no gloom and despair and agony for Jesus until he gets to the cross. But he is not gloomy and in despair and agonizing over the providence of God. When Paul here in this verse says, do all things without complaining or grumbling or murmuring, I think he particularly has in mind that idea. This, we, we typically would murmur, moan and groan about God's providence. You know, man, if you saw the boss that I have to work with, if you saw what my neighbors were like, if you saw my family members, the way they talked to me, on and on and on, you know, my health, uh, uh, my wealth or lack of it or whatever, we typically tend to murmur at God like the, like the Israelites in the wilderness because we don't like the providence of God, the things which God has provided uh, for us. And the apostle says, you know, your lives should stand out. They should be different, okay? Do all things without murmuring, grumbling, complaining. And our translation says, without disputing, um, 
uh, once, men, once again, it's a, a kind of an odd uh, uh, translation there. It's a, the word is technically correct, yeah, disputing, uh, all right. Um, but it's imp- that can give you the impression that he's saying to the Philippians, don't be fighting with one another. Now, there is that, and in the fourth chapter, we're going to see a very concrete example of that. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. When he says, do all things without murmuring, mumbling, moaning, and groaning, he's talking about uh, how we receive, how we accept God's providence, the events uh, in our lives and in our world. But when when he's talking about this, um, disputing or uh, arguing would be a, a, probably a little bit better uh, translation. I think the New King James maybe gives it in a, in, a, in a footnote. What you have to remember is he's talking about God and our relationship to in our obedience, doing the things that the apostle instructs us to do in the word of God, do all of those things and do them without murmuring at the providence of God and arguing with the law of God, arguing with the law of God. Okay? That's another uh, deadly uh, uh, barrier to living as the children of God uh, in this dark world. The original word, by the way, okay, it's literally, you could, it, we, you, we have the exact same word in English, without dialoguing. Now, we think of the word dialogue as a positive thing. Let's have a dialogue. We think of a dialogue in our naivete. We think of dialogue as a way to talk together to get to the truth. But the Greeks didn't see it that way. Dialogue, remember dia, like in a diagram or a diagonal, it means across, and dialogue, logos, okay? This uh, literally means cro- a, a crossfire of words. Dialoguing was what some of the uh, uh, debaters in old Greek philosophy did, especially what we call the sophists, who thought they were so wise. That's what the word sophist means. And these people dialogued or debated, okay, not for the purpose of getting at the truth, but for the purpose of defending their own position. In other words, in the debate, the goal was not to find the truth. The goal was to win, to win the debate. And the apostle is saying, we can do that with the word of God. God has given us 10 simple commandments. And then he unpacks them throughout all of the scripture, the depth and the breadth of them. But he's given us the Ten uh, Commandments. And what do we do with them? Well, we dialogue about them. We don't do it out loud, but, uh, you know, well, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Well, this is a white lie. That's 
might lie. Um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I told them I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in on that day, and I'm not going to be in for them. See, the goal is not to tell the truth, but to defend what I want to do. See the difference there? I don't want to, or on the other side of the coin, I don't want to offend somebody, so I flatter them. I compliment them. That's a white lie. That's a good lie. It's a lie. We debate, we debate the commandments of God. In the church today, I, I think it's inescapable the fourth commandment is the most highly debated commandment. We have entire churches that just don't believe in the fourth commandment. They don't believe we have to keep the Sabbath day. And, you know, all you have to do is look for reasons not to keep the Sabbath day. Yeah, see, because God has, yeah, he's given some, what would you say? God has said that, yes, this is a day to worship. I may, by my providence, make it obligatory on you not to worship me. If, you're, if your cattle have fallen down a pit and so on and so forth. But you start to debate that and the first thing you, you do, you got every excuse in the world constantly. Well, I didn't get the work done last week, so I need to work on Sunday afternoon. Okay. Or just, you know, whatever it is. But as soon as you start dialoguing, as soon as you start to, to debate what the commandments of God really mean. See, that's what, the, what, what uh, one of the major uh, parts of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is, is about. Well, I didn't actually kill them. Jesus said, you know, you're debating. You're arguing with the commandment because you didn't literally kill somebody. You think you're innocent. But the words you say and the attitudes you have are murderous. You're, you're looking for reasons. It's, this is one of the dangers in, in, in our legal system in the United States. You know, as, as soon as, as, as the legal system decides that the purpose of defending a person, a, a person in court is to try to get them off the hook, even if they're guilty, instead of to get the truth. Man, you got yourself a real situation here. Oh, you can say, yeah, well, it's because we want to have justice for them. At the, you can't have justice at the expense of truth. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous, this uh, dialoguing with, uh, with the word uh, of God. It's dangerous whether you're talking, uh, any of the commandments at all. When we start to say to ourselves, yeah, well, this isn't really murder. And yeah, but this, this isn't really lying. See, um, well, no, this isn't, this isn't really stealing from my boss or whoever. No, because, I mean, you know, this is just such a little thing. And our lives become, we're, we're, we're commandment breakers. And the worst part is we're comfortable because we feel like 
we won the debate. We're like the sophists of, of uh, ancient Greece. See, we didn't get to the truth, but we won the arguments. You see, we gave our reason. So Paul says, you know, do, do all things without complaining, okay, without moaning and groaning, and without dialoguing, okay, without disputing or arguing with the word of God. And then Paul moves on in the, uh, in the 15th verse, and he uh, teaches the Philippians and us, we should do all things without grumbling and arguing, and that we should do all things with outstanding holiness of life. This, he just kind of turns the coin over here. See, in the, in, in the 14th verse, he's telling you the attitude that we should not have. In the 15th verse, he's telling us the positive side, the attitude that we should have. So the 15th verse, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we should not only do all things without, without moaning and groaning and debating and arguing about them, but secondly, we should do everything perfectly. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, that you may become blameless and harmless. That's kind of a funny word. The word means innocent. Blame. We, I think in legal circles, they actually use the word, you know, I will be held harmless, means innocent, okay? Uh, blameless and harmless, children of God without fault. Well, first of all, you have to notice it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the goal of sanctification. Remember, we talked so much about that last week. Sanctification is the process of actually becoming what God has declared us to be in justification. It is the saint becoming a saint. In justification, the non-saint, the sinner, is declared to be a saint. In sanctification, that declared saint who is really a sinner is now being changed and made into an actual saint. So it's a, it's a rather beautiful uh, picture that Paul uh, gives us here. And he talks about some, he uses some kind of surprising words that we would be blameless. Well, who amongst the children of men is uh, blameless, right? This is an old, uh, an old word. Uh, and it's probably related to one of the lesser-known Greek gods. His name was Momus, M-O-M-U-S, Momus. And uh, Momus, I, you, you could look that up. Uh, a definition I found for Momus was he, he was a carping. Of course, carping is a, somebody who finds fault all the time. A carping deity who did nothing himself and found fault with everybody and everything. So he's this old God. He doesn't do a thing except point out uh, faults in other people. Okay. So to be blameless here 
paints the word picture of living in such a way that even old Momus couldn't find anything to pin on us. You see, we're living in such a way that even Momus can't complain about us. The word harmless, the next word, is uh, interesting too because literally it means unadulterated. It means unmixed. It was very commonly used of wine. I was horrified to read some time ago, was reading about what kind of wine did they actually drink commonly in the first century. And I found out, you know, of course they, they drank so much wine because water was, uh, was often either scarce or uh, impotable. Not, it was not safe to drink all the time. But they used to cut, cut the wine, though, generally. They used to mix it with, uh, with water. And I was horrified to find out that they often used seawater uh, to cut their wine. I mean, you would think it would taste, uh, taste pretty awful. I don't know. But anyway, uh, this word here means unmixed. This is, would be like wine that is not mixed with sea water. Okay? And so it's uh, very often translated uh, innocent, as I mentioned uh, earlier. It's, uh, it's the same idea, for example, when Jesus, remember, first meets Nathaniel. Well, maybe I shouldn't say when Jesus first meets uh, Nathaniel, because Jesus saw him before he met him, but when Nathaniel first meets Jesus. And remember, he comes to Jesus, and remember what, uh, what Nathaniel had early, early, earlier said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and when, <laughs> when Jesus sees him, he says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. <laughs> in other words, what you see is what you get. What he, what he thinks is what he says. He is unmixed. See, it's uh, honest. No tricks. No pretense. No sincere compliments. And we're supposed to be like that, honest in the world, that you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault. Wow. Okay. Uh, Paul is uh, piling them up here. And this is a triple Hebrew parallelism, by the way. Uh, These three words all have a whole lot in common. Each one just adds a a little bit of a different angle on the same kind of a thing. Being blameless, being harmless, being without fault. You you sense that right away. They're they're very uh, similar. They overlap a good deal. Okay. But the funny thing, this word also is based on the same root word, M-O-M-U-S, the same momus, okay, without fault. Well, because that's what, that's what momus did. He found fault. That was all he ever did, as a matter of fact, okay. So when this word here, without fault, actually means, uh, again, a person who could not be censured. If you look at his life, you can't condemn him. Okay. Look, you, you listen to his words, you look at his actions, and you, you, you can't help but admit that he walks the straight and narrow. He's above reproach, in other words. 
Okay. You know, so what Paul is giving us here, uh, he's talking about the children of God in this uh, crooked and uh, perverse and dark world, shining like lights. And he's talking about the Christian's life is supposed to be outwardly beautiful, morally irreproachable. Now you think of uh, that and all the Bible saints uh, are like that. Remember Job? Remember how the book of Job uh, begins by describing him? He was blameless. There's the same word. Blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. You go back further, way back to the sixth chapter of Genesis, the beginning of the flood story, six, uh, six through nine in Genesis, okay? And what do you read about Noah? That he was a just man, perfect in his generations, who walked with God. Okay? He's like King David, the man after God's own heart. First Samuel 13, verse 14. A man after God's own heart. He's like Barnabas in the New Testament, Acts chapter 11 and verse 24. Barnabas was, quote, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, if you're not getting the Bible, at that point, you, you probably start the dialogue. Well, you see, Here's the proof that the Bible is nonsense. It contradicts itself right and left. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 10. Paul says about himself, Romans 7, 18, I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I remember that John in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, starting with verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all have sin. Or I really got you on this one. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So the Bible obviously contradicts itself. Okay? Job can't be blameless and upright, and Noah can't be perfect in his generations, and King David wasn't a man after God's own heart, and Barnabas wasn't a good man. There's none who is good, no, not one. See, the Bible's obviously contradicting itself. Okay? But you know what? If you put away the dialogue, if you put away the arguing with the word of God and take a closer look, the Bible never says that any of those people are without sin. You know that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is embarrassingly clear how many sins the righteous commit. You know about Noah's one and only night of drunkenness and you know about Job's accusations against God for his providence, his murmurings. You know about David's adultery and murder to cover it up. You know about all those things. And there's just countless other examples, okay? But they all repented of their sins 
deeply, publicly, sincerely. Okay? And their sins, as gross as some of them were, were not fair descriptions of their lives. They're not fair descriptions of their lives at all. You could not call David an adulterer and a murderer. He committed those gross sins. And yeah, if, a, if, if any person who claims to be a, a, a God's child does a, a sin like that, he ought to doubt it. And David did doubt it. That's why he wrote the 51st Psalm and pleaded with God, take not from me thy Holy Spirit. Cast me not out from thy presence. Paul, David is perfectly well aware what he deserved, and yet he came on his knees before God. And the picture of David's life is a picture of a godly, godly man. You see that? Whether you're talking about uh, Noah or Job or David or Barnabas or any of them, they actually did shine like lights in a crooked and perverse generation in a dark world. And the Bible, like I said, the Bible's aware of that. And uh, I don't know if you noticed it when I read it to you. When it says about uh, Noah being a just man and perfect, Genesis 6, 9, it said what? Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. In other words, in the midst of a dark, and remember, they were all going to perish. God condemned the whole world that point with the exception of Noah okay? and he saved covenantally saved Noah's family even though not all of them were actually righteous okay but he saved them anyway put them in the ark and that's a sign of baptism and so on and so forth but uh, but uh, you, you see the idea there Noah Noah wasn't perfect and the Bible doesn't say so even the apostle Paul wasn't perfect I know that in me nothing good dwells, but even our best righteousnesses fall so far short, usually in our attitudes and our motivations. Okay, But the people of God... See, the, see the, the easy frontier for sanctification is our outward lives. You know, a drunk can sober up without being a Christian. A man can get honest in business without being a Christian. It's good business to be an honest man. You see what I'm saying here? The, the outward things in our lives, they, they may be hard, but that's the easy part of sanctification. The, the, the hard part is the deep down inside part, and that's where the sin remains. And that's what Paul says. I, I know that in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He's not saying that I run around getting drunk and committing adultery and murdering people and breaking the Sabbath and, and blaspheming the name of God. No, he doesn't do any of those things. And that's what, the, when Paul says, at first glance, looked shocking in the 15th verse, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's just saying your lives should be outstandingly different from the people in the world. 
They should know you're the most honest farmer around. You're the most honest lawyer around and so on and so forth. You see? So here in uh, Philippians then, Paul is exhorting us Christians to live lives that are obviously and undeniably lives lived in love and devotion to Christ, in confession and repentance of our many sins. We all fall in many ways, okay? So that no one, not even old Momus himself, could really accuse us of making a false profession, of being hypocrites in our faith. You see, it's the whole tenor of our lives. And when we live that way in the world, not a sinless life, but like Noah, perfect in our generation, then we show ourselves to be true children of God and to shine like lights uh, in the darkness, you see. Thirdly then, the Apostle Paul says, you should do all things without grumbling, and dialoguing, so to speak. We should do all things with outstanding holiness of life. Okay? And then thirdly, we should do all things with steadfast obedience. I almost use the word obeisance, but most people don't know what that means. It means bowing down to. Uh, uh, obedience to the inscripturated word of God. Verse 16. Okay? This is all one big long sentence, by the way. Uh, Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, where the New King James says holding fast, there's a lot of translations say hold fast. Some translations say hold firm. Some translations say hold forth. But you know me, I like a literal translation. And the the pieces of the word mean literally to hold above, to hold above. This is, in Greek, it would be epi-holding, okay? The epicenter, okay, is the center above uh, the earthquake. And, the, uh, you know, the epiderm is the skin above uh, the rest of the uh, body, the uh, rest of the skin. Epi means above, and the word that Paul uses here is epi-holding. It means holding the word of life, that's the word of God, above myself and the world and everything else. It's It's holding the word of God, giving it more esteem, more attention, more love and appreciation more obedience than any other thing in our lives. It is of supreme importance no matter what we do. Is it in conformity with the law of God? I think it's the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where he says, we cast down arguments. There's the dialogues. We cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing, here it is, every thought into captivity, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so Paul says, you know, no matter what it is you're doing in all things, 
Make sure that you're holding up the Word of God, that you are bowing down to the Word of God, that you are honoring the Word of God, and therefore not being like the world around you. That, that's that, that, that the whole point of the, of the first psalm, which is it's the foundational psalm. Okay? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the, in the seat of the scornful. Notice the, the, the triple parallelism there. The, you know, don't walk, don't stand, don't sit the way the world does. Okay? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. See, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Okay? Not be like the world, but hold fast. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He holds up that law of God and says, Can I do this? Ought to, somebody makes me an offer in business. Ought I to do this? If it doesn't honor the word of God, no. If you, you know, Gershner used to say, there is no commandment that you, thou shalt eat. There's no commandment that you have to make money. And if obedience to the law of God means you don't get the job, then you decide, do you sell your soul or not? you honor God or do you honor something else? Okay. Men or power or money or whatever it happens to be. And then notice in this verse too, Paul's, this astounding confidence he has, look at this, 16, holding fast the word of life. So now, in other words, if you hold fast the word of life, which of course Paul is saying, that's what I'm writing to you, okay? Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul is absolutely confident that if his teaching is believed and obeyed, okay, it will issue, it will uh, come out in the end, with the uh, final salvation of those who do obey. It's the promise of God, okay? Hold fast the word of life. So Paul says that he can rejoice in the day of Christ. I don't know if you've noticed how often he mentions the day of Christ, by the way, very much on his mind, that I have not run or labored in vain because Paul he doesn't mean that, that Paul would have uh, failed in teaching the whole counsel of God, but he means that the whole counsel of God was vain, useless for those who would not accept it, who would not bow down uh, to it and obey it. Then fourthly and lastly, do all things, first of all, without grumbling and arguing, Secondly, with outstanding holiness of life. Thirdly, with steadfast obedience and honor for the word of God. Fourthly and lastly, do all things 
okay, with a cheerful willingness to suffer for Christ because that's what's going to happen. With a cheerful willingness to suffer for Christ. Verses 17 and 18. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, for the same goal, toward the same end, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me, just like I do. In other words here, you see, Paul is saying that he is being poured out as a drink offering. Okay, A drink offering was an offering, but there, it, there's an example in the Old Testament, uh, and it was also common amongst uh, in, you know, pagan religions. Uh, presumably Paul is referring to the Old Testament, but it doesn't really make any difference. A drink offering was uh, an offering, usually wine, okay, that was uh, poured out sometimes on top of the sacrifice that was already on the altar. Okay, you see that in Numbers 28 if you wanted to look into it. Okay. The drink offering is not seen, in other words, as adding to the sufficiency of the offering itself. The offering is sufficient. Okay? So, of course, you're keeping in mind, Christ's offering is sufficient. But we can pour out our lives, as Paul did, upon the sacrifice, because this pouring out of the wine on top of the sacrifice was not to add to the value or the efficacy or the merit of the sacrifice, but was a way of joining that sacrifice in our, uh, in faith. Okay. It's joining oneself in faith. It's agreeing. Okay. It's believing in Christ. Okay. Well, interestingly, the Greek word, for uh, uh, being poured out, I am being poured out. Poured out. You, I'll say it in Greek, and you'll, if you just listen to the first part and don't worry about the ending, you'll understand it right away. Spendomai. What's the root? Spend. We get our word spend from there. To spend your money is to pour out your money. Okay? He is literally spending his life. He's in a, he's in a Roman prison. He may yet be acquitted. He, he has a suspicion he will be, but he's not certain, you know. He could be condemned. He could be executed for his service to Christ. But when he talks about his life uh, being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice, the one and only uh, sacrifice, you see, what's he have in mind? Well, his life is being poured out in his labors, for the Philippians, okay, his, but his floggings, his imprisonment, his, you know, all of the things that he, that he suffered throughout his entire life, his, his life is being poured out, but it's not poured out down the drain. It's poured out on the sacrifice. It's poured out on Christ. It's being joined to Christ and in Christ and with Christ. And that's why he says so shockingly 
if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul takes his own advice, his own command. No moaning, mumbling, groaning, and and dialoguing. My life is being poured out. He's not naive. His life is being poured out. You know, one day, and it's not that long from when this letter was written, that sacrificial pouring out of his life would be literal and final in his second Roman imprisonment. Okay? And in that second Roman imprisonment, you can read about it at the end of Second Timothy, Paul says this. You'll, you'll see the words echoed. These are some of the last words that Paul wrote that we have. Some of the last words. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. He's already been condemned. He just hasn't been executed yet. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But the Apostle Paul is glad And he rejoices. And so for the benefit, for the sake of the Philippians, he and all of us, he exhorts Christians to be prepared to do the same thing. See, in verse 17, he talks about his own spending or pouring out of uh, of his life. Okay, And then in verse 18, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. He doesn't mean there, I don't think. He doesn't mean... You guys, be glad and rejoice that I could get killed. He's saying be glad to, to, to rejoice along with me the same way I rejoice in my persecutions and sufferings. Okay? That, and we've seen that all, all, all along, how you know, the good soldier must, uh, must be willing to suffer honorably in the battle. So it's the same idea here. He's calling the Philippians and other Christians, yes, you know, if you desire to live uh, like children of God, blameless, faultless, innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you're not going to be loved. You're not going to be loved by the world. And you could get ultimately executed by the world, but whether it's that final execution or just the little persecutions that a person uh, can run into uh, in their lives, Paul is saying, far this, he's getting more and more positive all the time, far from moaning and groaning and and debating, uh, be glad, rejoice. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me, be willing to accept the consequences of not acting like the world. Be willing to accept the consequences, to suffer for the sake of obedience to Christ, obedience to his commandments. Pour out your lives. Spend your lives, Paul says. Okay, uh, No matter what, even unto the death. And so he's, uh, he's saying here, you know, along with the beloved apostle, the, the, the Philippians and we should be assured that along with Paul, okay, we will be glad. Nobody knows what persecutions, what sufferings, 
whether they're inward or outward or civil or whatever they are. Nobody knows what uh, that will really be. But the apostle is saying, you know, don't, don't grumble and moan and groan about it. It's for your glory. It's for your eternal benefit, okay, that they should do all things without murmuring and without dialoguing about it. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, you who came into this dark world into the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you who came to suffer and to die, and yet you who looked to the Father and thanked him for all of the, uh, his providence in your life, that you actually rejoiced to die for us. Oh, how we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase our faith in you, increase our love for you, increase our desire to please you, to obey you, to learn better how to obey you, to set aside the things um, that so uh, entangle our Christian lives and choke them off. Help us, dear Jesus, to, to cheerfully and joyfully Put those things uh, aside so that we might pour out our lives upon your sacrifice for us. We pray it in your name. Amen.